This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. This is from Twitter. Hey, Roman Mars and 99PI Org. I have a burning question for you. Why do U.S. flags on military vehicles in uniforms always appear backwards? That's from Michael McAlpin. Well, first of all, they're only backwards part of the time. Military regulations state that when a flag is displayed, it must give the effect of that flag flying in the breeze as if the person wearing it is moving forward. So if the patch is on the left arm, the flag is displayed as you normally think of it with that blue star field in the upper left-hand corner. But if the flag patch is on the right arm, it's the reverse side flag that's displayed with the blue star field in the upper right-hand corner. The same goes for vehicles. The blue star field always points towards the front of the vehicle as if it's flying and we're charging forward to victory. So if you're looking at the right side of a tank or an aircraft, you'll see the reverse flag. This is part two of the mini stories episode where I interview the staff about their favorite little design stories that don't quite fill out an entire episode for whatever reason, but they are cool 99PI stories nonetheless. Plus, in between the staff stories, I'll be telling a few mini stories suggested by you beautiful nerds who enjoy having me paraphrase Google search results and read them out loud. All right. Up first is senior editor Katie Minkle. My name is Katie Mingle, and I am the senior editor. What does that mean? (laughs) I do the same stuff that we all do in some ways, which is like find stories and report on them and make them. But I also edit a lot. So I look at other people's stories on paper before they go to like a larger group edit. And I cut like five pages (laughs) out of every story. (laughs) No, I cut, I probably cut like four minutes and sometimes do some restructuring and just kind of try to get it ready right? so that it's a little more smooth when the whole group looks at it. And so even though we don't hear your voice in every story, you have worked on every story because you've, you've edited almost every story that comes out of here. Yes, yeah. I'm lurking behind every <laughs> 99PI story. Cool. Okay, so but in addition to that, you do pitch stories. And so part of coming up with story ideas is basically just trolling around the internet trying to find things to turn things into stories. And that's how this one came to you. Yeah, huge amounts of time just like following links. Mm -hmm. That's sort of like how this one came about. And I ended up on this YouTube video about this place called the Biker Wall, which is in Newcastle, England. And it's being narrated by this woman wearing this amazing sort of double-breasted suit jacket. And she's just super, super 80s. Her name's Beatrix Campbell. In the video, she's sort of walking around outside the, the biker wall or the biker estate. It's big and it's small. It's cheap and cheerful. It's cheeky. And it's clever. (laughs) I don't really know how it's big and small, but... (laughs) And I'm not sure that ever we ever really figure that out. So the structure or the sort of estate that she's talking about, it actually replaced an entire neighborhood. So let me just give you a little background. In 1963 in Newcastle, England, a 17,000 resident working class neighborhood called Biker, uh, so the same name as this new place, 
was demolished because it was considered a slum and I think there were a lot of vacancies. And the neighborhood was made up of sort of Victorian row housing. And like if you've ever seen the movie Billy Elliot (laughs) and you can like picture him sort of dancing through these like brick houses and really, really close together and narrow streets, Mm. that's 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 biker. Exact, that's the old biker. That's the old biker, and I think that movie was actually filmed really close to um, the old biker neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Street by street, the old slums were cleared, while street by street, the new biker was built. So yeah, in place of the old neighborhood of um, brick row houses, this architect named Ralph Erskine built the new place, which is called Biker Wall, or or sometimes Biker Estate, and it's a community of public housing that is enclosed by this great big wall of apartments. The wall is a mile and a half long, and it provides a barrier to winds coming kind of off the North Sea and also um, highway noise. There's like a big uh, freeway or expressway nearby. And it kind of creates this sort of microclimate within the community. So it's basically this big wall that sort of wraps around these other buildings, enclosing them. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Campbell, she has some very like vivid descriptions, um, but she says the way it's constructed and laid out kind of reminds her of a pomegranate. It's kind of like a pomegranate. It's fruity, hard edges and soft, sweet places inside. <laughs> yeah. Um, and if you're feeling like at all like that was a little sexual, it gets like there's more. But what does all this mean for architecture? Is it modernist or postmodernist or what? For sure, it abolishes aggressive phallic architecture, all those grey erections which puncture the skyline. Maybe it's vulval architecture. It's round, it goes with the contours of the landscape, it's an enclosure rather than a disclosure, full of nooks and crannies, layers and levels and surprises. <laughs> Nooks and crannies. <laughs> um, oh my god! Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, if you didn't hear that, it, it abolishes aggressive phallic architecture and those gray erections that puncture the skyline yeah. for a vulval architecture. Those gray erections. <laughs> uh, oh, that's so great. So yes. Yeah, so I found this place, and I was sort of like. I want to put this on the air basically <laughs> just to get this lady and her vulval architecture theories on our podcast. Like, I don't know if there's a story here, but I want there to be. Um, but, there's, so there's, but there are little cool things about bikers. So There's I mean, actually a lot yeah. that's kind of neat about it. Ralph Erskine, the architect, he was a socialist and a Quaker, and he really wanted to build a place that fostered community. And he'd also studied buildings in the Arctic and how they were constructed to sort of shield the inner courtyards from from winds coming in from the outside. And he wanted to do something similar, but not just to shield it from winds, but also just to enclose the residents in this vulvic (laughs) community. community. (laughs) And Erskine tried really, really hard to involve a bunch of the residents from the old biker in the redesign of the new one. But despite his sort of best efforts, not that many of the original residents ended up living there. 
And eventually in the 80s, the the place kind of turns a little bit back into a slum. Um, There's a lot of crime and and vacancies, and a lot of the places sort of fall into disrepair. The Guardian uh, said this about the biker, uh, the new biker estate. For all its faults, Biker Wall was an exemplar of both design and an attempt to involve the community in the changes planned for them by those in power. That it failed in so many ways reveals that it's rarely in the interests of communities to demolish the homes they live in. Yeah, so that's to me, that's just sort of like you can try really hard to do it right and it still might come out wrong. Right, Um, right. So, and Beatrix Campbell, the the YouTube lady, she she admits that the place is flawed, but she still thinks it's pretty great. It's flawed, of course, but at least unlike most of its contemporaries, there's a bit of democracy here. It's both monumental and modest. It's a social space and domestic. There's something lighthearted about this place, something lovable. Okay, so I don't know if you could understand her last line there, but she says there's something lighthearted about this place, something lovable. And then if, <laughs> I love that if you scroll down on just a little ways, that the comment on the video says um, they didn't tell them it was Carl Orff 24-7 <laughs> in this place. <laughs> and um, Carl Orff, I think what that comment is getting at is that it was really a kind of a dark place to live because Carl Orff wrote this tune. That's pretty dark. That's the biker wall. Cool. Thank you, Katie. Yeah. In 2014, the Biker Community Trust started a multi-million dollar revamp of the biker wall with lots of improvements, including broadband in every property. So I hope it's not all Carl Orff up there anymore, if indeed it ever was. Tell me who you are. I am Sharif Yusuf, assistant producer at 99PI. And what does that mean? What do you do? I sort of do a lot of the Pro Tools stuff, so working with the actual tape for a lot of the producer's stories. I score and sound design a lot of the pieces. I do research and fact-checking. So I basically do whatever needs to be done. And so what is your uh, mini-story? So things that are creative are relatively simple to copyright. You write a song, copyright. You write a book, it's easy to get copyright, and it's easy to prove that you've done this thing. Mm -hmm. But a question arises when... You try to copyright something that is based in fact, some sort of objective reality, like the definition of a word in dictionaries mm-hmm. or a, an entry for a person in an encyclopedia. Or, uh, in this case, maps. When I know you like a good map story, Oh, Roman. I love a good map story. Yeah, so this story is about a town called Aglo, New York. And it was in the 1930s, the General Drafting Company mm-hmm. was creating a map of New York State. So they put in a lot of hours and a lot of manpower detailing all the rivers and gorges and finger lakes and towns. And they said, we put in so much work, you know, we have to protect our investment. Mm -hmm. So they set a copyright trap uh, near the northwest corner of Pennsylvania, just a couple miles into New York. uh, They put a little town next to Roscoe, New York, called 
Aglo. And Aglo, I believe, is actually a jumble of the initials of the founders' names, A-G-L-O-E. And so they put this on the map, and they know that if another map shows Aglo, New York, that person was copying their map. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So they create this fictitious town. It's on the map. And it's like sold in Esso stations around the, the, the state. And for a while, everything is all hunky-dory. But then, several years later, another map comes out. And they open the map. And lo and behold, Aglo was on it. This company was called Rand McNally Drafting Company. <laughs> Busted. Busted. Yeah, that's what they thought. So... Uh, the general drafting company goes, yo, Rand McNally, you stole our map and we're going to sue you. And Rand McNally is like, no, no, wait, this is an actual place. Let's go and take a look. And so the general drafting company people are like, okay, sure, take us to Aglo. So they go to this place where Aglo should be. And lo and behold, there is actually a big general store there, uh, a small general store, actually. Uh, and it's called the Aglo General Store. And there are a couple houses, maybe two at its peak. So the story goes, some people, maybe from the neighboring towns, wandered to this place, wanted to build a general store, saw that the map said Aglo is here, but nothing was there. So uh, when they wanted to build the store, they just slapped on the Aglo name. So this place that was created as a fictitious copyright trap sort of sprang up into reality. So this sort of became famous because this author, John Green, uh, wrote a book called Paper Towns that mm -hmm. is set in Aglo, New York. And he gave a TEDx talk about Aglo, New York and about the concept of paper towns as well. Yeah. Um, and it was since turned into a movie. So we thought this story might not be a great fit for us because people in our audience might already be really familiar with it. Yeah. But we can talk about it a little bit. And if you want to learn more, you should look up John Green because he and his brother Hank make these great videos. That you learn all kinds of things. And I know people who like this show will totally love what they do on YouTube. So check them out. And you are... <laughs> I'm Kurt Colstead, and I'm the digital director at 99% Invisible. And describe what that means. Sure. I produce uh, web stories for the show, and I take care of all of our digital content. So several years ago, I, I remember being in the waiting room waiting for Maslow, who was in surgery. It, it all turned out fine. Uh, I got an email from a firefighter, and she said, do you know anything about Knox boxes? which are these little invisible elements that you see everywhere in urban environments, but you probably never notice them. So please tell us, what is a Knox box? Yeah, a Knox box, in simple terms, is a rapid entry system. It allows emergency personnel to get into buildings quickly when there's a disaster going on. So, for example, when there's a fire in your apartment building and the fire department is trying to get in quickly, they show up, they open the Knox box, get out a key, and enter the building. So describe it like physically. So it's like a little box that's sort of up against a wall, like posted on a wall? A Knox box will typically be found within a few feet of an entryway. It's at eye level. It's a black box usually with a little red on it so it's easy to spot. So the fire department shows up. They grab a hold of this little box, and they use their master key to open it and enter the building. So if there's a fire inside, they don't want to break in and all the doors and windows. They just, if there's a key available, they can use it. Right. In an emergency, they're not worried about, you know, the property damage. Of course, that's a byproduct. But 
they're worried about injuring themselves, right? So if they have to break a glass door and jump through the, through that glass door, that puts them at greater risk. Mm-hmm. It also takes more time to get into the building. This saves them time, reduces injury injury risk, and uh, just lets them in quickly. And so how does the whole system work? So they, they have a master key that opens up all the Knox boxes? Right. So their master key opens up all the Knox boxes for all the different buildings. And that means when they arrive at a building, they don't have to sort through a bunch of keys, figure out how they're going to get into that particular building. They just whip out their one key, stick it in the Knox box, open it up, and inside of that, they will find whatever key they need to access that particular building. Where does the name Knox come from? Knox is a, is a company that produces a lot of these boxes. And so technically, generically, you would, might call them a rapid entry system. But Knox makes so many of them that it has become an everyday sort of household name for these things. Knox box, like, like Kleenex. Band-Aid and Kleenex, yeah. exactly. Okay, cool. So like if you are in any populated area, you will see a ton of these, right? Like it, they're everywhere. Yeah, you, you are surrounded by Knox boxes. Basically, anywhere you go, you probably pass a dozen or so of these just walking down the street every day. So on every block of every city, you'll find some equivalent of an ox box attached to the outside of the building. And once you start seeing these, you will see them everywhere. They are at eye level. They're made to be seen. And yet they're somehow strangely invisible until you start noticing them. (laughs) So cool. This was one of those great examples of a short story that was just it's an anecdote more than a story. So it made sense to just put it up on the web. And uh, and call it good. Right. And so we have tons of those. We have a whole website devoted to them at 99pi.org. Thanks to Nikki, the former firefighter, for the Knoxbox suggestion all those years ago. Last week, I got this mini-story suggestion from Tucson, Arizona resident Megan Phillips. In Tucson, roads running east-west are called street, Roads running north-south are called Avenue. That all makes sense. But what is unique to Tucson is that any diagonal roads are called Stravenue, a portmanteau of street and avenue. That is an official designation. That's not just slang. And I think that's pretty cool. When I got Megan's note, I was sitting next to famous portmanteau skeptic Helen Zaltzman of The Illusionist. That's Radiotopia's acclaimed word podcast. And I asked her what she thought. I know your general opinion portmanteau is pretty... Negative. I think that's unfair. I think where portmanteaus are useful is to express a concept for which you don't have a proper term and it's um, related to concepts that you do already have terms for. However, in this case, I feel like the portmanteau is fixing a problem that doesn't really exist. (laughs) And that problem is that the people of Tucson are just very much too dependent on things either being streets or avenues And um, I come from Britain, which does not have such a binary road naming system. So uh, you might get a street that is called a street or a road or an avenue or a crescent or a boulevard or not even have a road term at all. And uh, it could go in any direction. So live and let live, Tucson. It's a very pro-design, pro-grid show. I'm sorry that you had to hear that, my nerds. But I assure you... Helen Zaltzman's The Illusionist is a fantastic podcast that will teach and entertain you about words and the strange consequences of language. But I won't have Helen planning my city, because grids rule. Man, I'm so excited to... I was about to say I'm so excited to get this story out of my system, but honestly, I still think it would make a good story. (laughs) I think everyone is wrong, and I think I'm right, and I want it to 
<laughs> I'm still holding out hope. Sorry, I yeah. Maybe the there'll be a groundswell that they need to know the whole story at the end. <laughs> maybe, maybe, or I, I'm I'm just worried that people will hear it and be like, oh yeah, no, it's, it doesn't work, which would mean I'm totally crazy. Let's let's <laughs> okay, find let's, out. Yeah. So okay, so tell me who you are. I'm Avery Truffleman. <laughs> what do you do here? I'm a producer at 99% Invisible. Okay. So we're telling all the type of stories that we can't tell on the radio for various reasons. Maybe they were little parts of stories that got cut out uh, because they were too confusing. Maybe they were, you know, like a little too small to constitute like putting a whole uh, episode about. But this one, this one, <laughs> this one is different. This, why, why is it different? This was supposed to be my magnum opus. <laughs> this was <laughs> the one that got away. I mean, I made it like two years ago. Uh-huh. And so at the time, I was like, this is it. I was already planning out, like, the T-shirts we would sell about this episode. <laughs> and, like, and it just, it didn't happen. Okay, so what is this story? This is about the most iconic poster in the world. It is a poster we have all seen. It is a poster we have all been forced to see. It is... <laughs> The suspense. <laughs> the suspense. <laughs> it is this poster. Can you read that line there? D-A-O-6. It is that pyramid arrangement of black letters on a white background. It has usually got a big E at the top, right. and each line of letters gets progressively smaller. It is the vision chart, and it has an official name. What's the name? It is called the Snellen chart, after the Dutch ophthalmologist Herman Snellen, who invented it in 1862. Anything here? E-V-O-T-Z-2. You are perfectly 2020. The way it works is that you read off the series of letters on each line, and if you get the majority right, you get to move to the next line. Then you pass. And I went to a bunch of ophthalmologists, and I took this vision (laughs) test a bunch of times. And according to Mira Lim, this very kind ophthalmologist who works up the street from us. By convention, you always use the Snellen chart. This just works well. It's what everybody has. And uh, a big part of why the Snellen chart works really well is because it's easy to memorize. And a lot of ophthalmologists and eye doctors have memorized their chart. E-S-L-C-A-V-A D-A-O-6 E-G-N-U-5 F-Z-B-D-4 O-F-L-C-T A-P-E-O-2-5-E-V-O-T-Z-2. There you go. <laughs> Whoa, so that's just her. She just rattles she, it off. She rattles it off. And that's because th- if you think about it, then they don't have to um, like squint with you to like make sure you got each one right. Or they don't even have to follow along on a paper. Like if they have it memorized, they can just be like, oh, wrong, oh, wrong. And you, they can assess you really quickly. Right. Which if you're an eye doctor, you're doing this to every single patient. And sure. then this makes... This adds minutes to your day once (laughs) you have it memorized. So the Snellen chart is iconic. You can see it on, like, mugs and ties and whatever. It's everywhere. Just that layout is classic. Right. But it has an obvious problem. (laughs) This is the thing that I have a hard time describing. (laughs) Let me try it out. Okay. The way the test works, you read the line, you get the majority right, and then you get to go to the next line. Mm -hmm. But if every line has a different amount of letters on it, it's basically a different test every time. Right. You can get one line, it's okay to get three wrong. The next line, it's okay to get, whatever, four wrong. Right. It's a different test every time. You have different odds. 
if you got three out of five right in the 2020 row, you would be given 2020. But if I said, let me repeat that, and you only got two letters right in that same row, now you would have 2025. It's just shockingly imprecise. It's unbelievable. It is. That is Dr. Ian Bailey. And in the 70s, he helped design a more precise vision chart that has five letters on every single line. I think our chart design uh, could be um, compared with designing a ruler where you say, why don't we make the markings along the ruler of the same size? (laughs) Uh, It seems obvious. (laughs) And so he has five big letters at the top, five letters on the next line, five letters on the next line, all spaced equally apart. It's very precise. But if you visualize it for a second, right, instead of one giant letter at the top, Mm -hmm. There are five giant letters at the top, which means that it is a physically bigger chart. It's just wider. Right. Um, And also that means it looks more like an upside down pyramid. So you have five really big letters at the top and then five smaller letters and then five smaller letters and then they get tiny, 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 but there's still always five. Yeah, exactly. And And then the thing is he also had to pick which letters to use. And so some letters are more confusable, like C and G. Some mm-hmm. letters are very distinct, like Z and A. And so he also had this like design challenge of making sure that you wouldn't have one line of like, oh, easy letters and one line of difficult letters right. to make sure they distribute okay. evenly. And he also had to make sure that there wasn't like, because he designed it in Australia and he wanted to make sure N and Z weren't next to each other because people would be like, oh, New Zealand. And like, create associations oh. with with shapes. Interesting. So yeah, it was like a it was a really tough chart to design. That's yeah. the Logmar chart. That's called the Logmar chart. It is one of many improved charts. But the problem is, so yeah, the chart is a lot bigger and wider. Like right. physically it takes up more wall space, which a lot of offices can't actually accommodate. <laughs> and since there are five letters on every row, it means there are more letters for doctors to memorize. Okay. And actually Dr. Bailey hasn't memorized his own chart. No, not exactly. Um, I can still remember the Snellen chart that I used to have when I was in private practice. Can you recite it? Yep. E-C-B-D-L-N-P-T-E-O. Long story short, like, the memorization is really key to why the Snellen chart works. It's like what everyone is used to. The old pyramid shape is, like, easier to memorize. So the vision chart presents this really interesting question about what really makes a design good. Because on the one hand, you have charts like the Logmar chart, like Dr. Bailey's chart, which are standardized and precise and just a better tool, but a little harder to accommodate and a little harder to use. And then on the other hand, you have the classic Snellen chart, which is less precise, but way easier to memorize, which means it's a more efficient test for doctors. Plus, it fits conveniently on a wall. It is memorable, quick, easy imprecise, and totally iconic. There's probably more scientific ways of measuring vision, but it's a pretty good, it's a pretty good way of assessing how well you can see and function. So it's good. It does work. And it's, it's a lot easier than the other ways that you could do it. <laughs> so you see both versions of the chart around, and just next time you get your eyes checked, you can see which design your doctor has opted for. If you see a, the traditional pyramid Snellen chart shape, that means it's more efficient for the doctor to use. Mm-hmm. And if you see the upside-down Logmar shape, that means it's just a more precise tool for measuring vision. Yeah. But, like, both are good designs, just in really different ways. 
So we just gave the most cursory explanation of these two different charts and the design implications of each of them. But when the whole story was was being scripted, it had lots of different details and it ended up getting more and more confusing about what 2020 vision actually was and all this sorts of stuff. And eventually we just decided just to kill the story and, and not actually produce a full version of it, which is an ongoing tragedy we were reminded of all the time that uh, that this one never really made it. I researched the hell out of this. I am still subscribed to the Ophthalmology National Newsletter, and I see this chart everywhere. And it and it really, can I say pisses me off? It really pisses me off because I've had this tape lying around forever. I even made I even made this really fun medley of songs. Check it out. Twenty twenty vision. That is the end of the mini stories. Happy 2017, everyone. Normal episodes commence next week with less giggling, but we might try this again a couple times a year if people are into it. We had a huge response to the last episode, so if you have a mini story suggestion, send it our way and maybe we'll address it at the end of the year. 99% Invisible is Katie Mingle, Delaney Hall, Kurt Kolstad, Sharif Youssef, Sam Greenspan, Avery Truffleman, Emmett Fitzgerald, Taryn Mazza, and me, Roman Mars. We are a project of 91.7 KALW San Francisco and produced on Radio Row in beautiful downtown Oakland, California. Support for 99% Invisible is provided by Blue Apron. Blue Apron is the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. I had been cooking fewer and fewer meals with my family, and Blue Apron totally turned that around. Research shows that Blue Apron families cook nearly three times as often. For less than $10 per person per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash nine nine. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash nine nine. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Support is provided by Squarespace. It's 2017. Time to make your next move with a beautiful website made with Squarespace. They have very pleasing, award-winning templates for your website and online store that just work and look good. There's nothing to install, patch, or upgrade ever. It's super easy. But if you need any help, Squarespace provides kind, extremely non-judgmental 24-7 customer support full of people who also just work and look good. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase, visit squarespace.com slash invisible. That's squarespace.com slash invisible. And finally, this show in Radiotopia from PRX exists because of the coin-carrying listeners who donate to us, the Knight Foundation and MailChimp. Over 12 million people use MailChimp to connect with their customers, market their products, and grow their businesses every day. MailChimp helped us grow by giving us a place to tell more stories. This week, stunning visual guides to domestic architecture styles. If you can't tell your Greek revivals from your neoclassicals, here's the place to start. You can subscribe to our MailChimp newsletter at 99pi.org, but to find out how to send better email of your own, tell your story, and sell more stuff, go to MailChimp.com. You can find the show and join discussions about the show on Facebook. You can tweet at me at Roman Mars and the show at 99pi.org. We're on Instagram and Tumblr too. 
But to get the full 99PI experience, you need to go to 99pi.org. Radiotopia. 